Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. So, I don't know if you've ever laid tile or painted a picture or maybe been a part of some project where you just got so close you forgot the bigger picture. Um, maybe it was because you're just so focused and intent on such a small part of it, the, the bigger part of it got kind of away from you. And so if you kind of can understand how that could happen, I, I want you to kind of know that's what we're going to do today. We're going to kind of spend some time getting the big picture from Daniel chapter 7. So we're in the book of Daniel, been preaching through that book for quite some time, and after today, you're going to say, well, we're never going to get out. Uh, Stick with me. But mankind started well, but then that went bad really fast. The promise of a deliverer was first given in the seed of a woman. The hope was passed on to Abraham, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, who passed it on to his sons. It was beautifully illustrated in the book of Exodus, and it was longed for by the judges. It was amplified in the kings. It was even predicted by the prophets, and finally it was fulfilled in the gospels. But not until Revelation does it come to its fullest climax, and that is that Christ rides out of heaven to destroy sin and Satan and to restore creation to the original glory and for our good and for his good pleasure forevermore. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you, the big picture is this, that the king is coming, and he's going to set up his kingdom. Here's what I need you to know. The king has communicated about that. He's told us what's going to happen. He's proclaimed it in every generation and among every nation, and he's invited every single person to be a part of his kingdom. And so we come to yet another way. The king and his kingdom has been communicated in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 sweeps all the way from the life of Daniel into the return of the king and his kingdom. And it touches on these epics of history and the in-between. It lays out for us God's incredible, unchangeable, redemptive plan of human history and how he, the king, and his kingdom is going to come. So what you have to understand is, is that Daniel chapter 7 is communication. But it's a particular type of communication. It is apocalyptic or prophetic. And in order to understand the apocalyptic or the prophetic, we have to take some time to really dig in and understand what that is so that we can understand what's been said. So we're going to take our time through this chapter. And in an atypical fashion, I'm only going to preach one verse this morning. Because we have to really understand what is going to happen in this chapter or else we're going to miss it and come up with all kinds of things that the king didn't communicate. So, so far we've seen the first six chapters are mostly history with a little bit of prophecy. The last six chapters of Daniel are mostly prophecy with a little bit of history. In chapter 7, we have an overwhelming bit of communication about the sweep of history for the whole of history for the future of the world. And then in chapters 8 through 12, we return, but to the individual elements that are dealt with in summary, panoramic fashion in chapter 7. So because of the prophetic nature of this incredible communication piece, we're going to break this chapter into five messages. This morning, we're going to look at the communication about the king and his kingdom. And then we're going to look at the challengers to the king and his kingdom, And then we're going to see the crowning of the king and his kingdom. And then we're going to see the characteristics of the king and the kingdom. And finally, yes, we will see the coming of the king and his kingdom. Daniel chapter 7 has been called the most comprehensive and detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. Hence why we're going to slow down. As mentioned, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 is primarily what we call apocalyptic. It's made up of visions and pictures. David Helm, a commentator, says that it's storytelling gives way now to movie watching. Those of you who are visually oriented will appreciate this form of communication. So what do we mean by apocalyptic genre or literary style of communicating? 
David Davis is helpful when he writes, I would say that biblical apocalyptic is sort of a prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage a people despised and cast off by the world with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history. And it communicates this message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. Truth will be conveyed symbolically through wild, crazy, strange, imaginary stuff. But there is real stuff behind the imagery. It will be a challenge for us to find the right keys to unlock what's going on behind those images or else we can get off on some crazy tangents that half of the cults and other other people that might be meeting on a Sunday, such as Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or you name it, they're meeting based on of an improper interpretation of Daniel chapter 7. So it would behoove us to figure out exactly what is being said. So what is the heart and soul of this vision in chapter 7? If I were to summarize it, it really is about the king and his kingdom. So let's dig in this morning and let's talk about the communication about the king and his kingdom. So I'm going to begin and I'm, I'm going to touch on very quickly. No, it'll take me a moment. Daniel chapter 7 verse 1. Now as is our custom here, and I know you've been standing for a long time, but as our custom here when we believe that God is speaking through his word, we stand just to honor the king, that we're telling our brains, we're telling our children that are gathered with us that somebody else is speaking and we need to honor God and his word. So would you stand with us as I just quickly read Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Now watch this. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. You may be seated, and may God bless his word. Here's something very, very, very generically said here that we need to pay attention to. We can read about the telling of the future. We don't have to go see a crystal ball or go see somebody with some tarot cards. We don't have to get our palms read to know the future. It's right here. We can read about it. Daniel had a dream and visions upon his bed. Prior to this, if you've noticed in the first six chapters, somebody else always had the vision, and Daniel interpreted. Now it's Daniel that's having a vision, and Daniel interprets his own vision. He receives it in a night vision. Apparently, while he slept, God turned his dream into this revelatory vision and gave him tremendous perspective about how the world's all going to go. Then it says at the end of verse 1 that he wrote down the dream. He put it in writing. Therefore, that's how we can read about it. Not only did he write it down, though, but it says that he went around telling it to people in a public fashion so that everybody else would know what it was that he had. So we have in our hands this morning, what you have in your hands is communication about the king and his kingdom. We can read about the telling of the future. Daniel provides a historical marker for us. He says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Belshazzar gets one chapter in Daniel chapter 5. You remember it's not a pretty picture. It's this drunken get-together uh, ends with death and the fall of the, the Babylon Empire to the Medes and the Persians. Now, Belshazzar's reign was around 553 B.C., so Daniel, if you would remember, would have been around 60, and Belshazzar would have been in his 30s at the time of that. So what we have is, is Daniel now going back to talk about something that's happened earlier. That's going to be key for you to understand what's going on. So we have, to, we have to think about this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions while he was on his bed, and then he writes down this dream telling the main facts. And we're going to get to those facts in a couple of weeks, but right now you just need to know that we can read about the future because Daniel wrote it down. Now I want you to notice that we have a historical setting in this chapter that's critical. Proper names are given. Belshazzar is, in this case, the ruler. We know exactly where Daniel was because he was in Babylon. We know how long he was there. We certainly know how long the children of Israel were there before they're sent back to their land. And now we get far more details, and that creates a problem. And here's what I'm trying to get at this morning. 
From the beginning of chapter 7 all the way to the end of the book, some have an incredible problem. The problem is simply this. Because there are so many detailed predictions of the future that have actually come true from Daniel chapter 7, it has raised the interest and skepticism of the critic. For example, in Daniel chapter 11, there are 35 verses that have 135 fulfilled prophecies that have already happened just alone in Daniel chapter 11. 135 predictions of the future in 35 verses, and they have all happened, and this has caused the interest of those who are called critics of the Bible. Now, now you're probably going, well, help me here. I don't see how all those, uh, those verses and all those prophecies being fulfilled is a problem. Well, let me illustrate what we're really talking about. Dr. Cressy Morrison had a great illustration from the New York Academy of Sciences that I came across. He said this. He said, suppose I had in my pocket 10 pennies and I marked those pennies one through 10. And then with my hands out of my pocket, I made a prediction to you. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to all you right now. I'm going to reach into my pocket and I'm going to pull out penny marked number one. If I were to pull my hand out and pull out the penny that was marked number one and show it to you, what would the chances of that be? Well, the chances would be one in 10 because there were 10 pennies. But if I said, now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to reach in my pocket and select with, with my fingers penny mark number two, my odds exponentially decrease to one in a hundred. If I pull out pennies one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all in that sequence, my odds are one in a hundred billion. Now, let's just say I did that and I awed all of you. You might clap and be, be awed, but a majority of you would say, you know what, something's up. <laughs> Some of you would say, something's going on. The preacher's got something fixed. There's no way he could literally do that. That's exactly the problem. So many prophecies from Daniel chapter 7 have been fulfilled. People say, something is up. There's no way anybody could predict the future the way Daniel did it. There's some gimmick. And so, they come across with some predispositions. Number one, that they say, we lived in a closed system where the miraculous is impossible. Predisposition number two is that because the premise number one is true, the things that are written about in Daniel, really, they really happened, so then they must have been written after the fact of them happening. It's really not prophecy, they say. It's history that somebody wrote about later after it happened. So that's how they approach this. Now, we here Christians have no problem with prophecy. We read about it and we go, yay. It's just simply another evidence of God's incredible power. God orchestrates history. God is all-knowing and the Lord God is perfect to predict with great detail an event no more difficult than, than you waking up in the morning saying, you know what, I think it's going to rain somewhere. It's probably going to rain somewhere. You could say, you know what, a broken clock is... is right? Twice a day, right? I mean, that's not prophecy. That's just what happens. But when God gives these kind of meticulous, intricate prophecies, the unbeliever has a problem because of those predispositions. There must be, he says, or she says, some natural explanation because there is no supernatural. So there has to be a natural explanation for how somebody could get that right. It's kind of like the nine-year-old boy who went to Sunday school, and afterwards, his mom said, so, so what did you learn in Sunday school? What did the teacher tell you? And so the boy said, well, what happened was the children of Israel were in a fix with the Egyptians. So Moses was sent behind enemy lines to rescue them. And so what Moses did is he had his engineers build this huge pontoon boat over the Red Sea so that the children of Israel could get safely from one part to the other. And then he got on his walkie-talkie, and he radioed in for extra support, and the bombers came in and bobbed the pontoon bridge. Now the Egyptians were on top of, and they all drowned in the Red Sea. And his mother looked at him and said, you mean to tell me that's what your Sunday school teacher taught you today? He said, no, Mom, but if I were to tell it to you the way she told me, you would never believe it like I don't. And that's what the skeptic does. That's what the critic does. You, you can't believe anything supernatural. It just doesn't happen, so we got to make this stuff up. It wasn't really the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea. It only had 18 inches of water, they say, that the children of Israel walked through. Well, you tell me how's a bunch of Egyptians drowning in 18 inches of water. I don't know. You tell me. 
It wasn't really manna that fell down from heaven. It was just the sap that appears in desert bushes common in the Sinai Peninsula. The resurrection of Jesus didn't really happen because we know stuff like that doesn't happen. There must have been hallucinations the disciples had in their ecstatic sleep state, or Jesus just didn't really die. He appeared to die. He almost died, but he didn't die. Daniel didn't write this book. Somebody else wrote it after the fact, and that's because many skeptics believe this because of the amazing predictions that have come true from the book of Daniel. I'll remind you of a little bit of history that I referred to in an earlier message. But this first started surfacing, this, this biblical, just saying Daniel chapter 7 cannot be true, started in the early 3rd century by, by a guy named Porphyry. He was a Neoplatonic philosopher. In other words, he took the, the philosophies of Plato and turned them and made them new. He was a pagan. He wrote 15 books called Against the Christians. 15 volumes. His life work was against the Christians. He hated Christians and wanted to destroy the teachings of Christianity, and he wanted to defend polytheism. And so Porphyry said that Daniel, that the one we say that wrote the book of Daniel, didn't really really write the book of Daniel, that there was some unknown Jew further down the road about 165 B.C., in the Maccabean period between the Old and New Testaments, that had to have written this stuff. He must have been a Judean. He wrote all these things after Daniel predicted what they would happen. So after 400 years, it happened that he wrote it down. It was a forgery, and he made it look like it was a prophecy. So you might ask, well, what's the big deal? Why are we spending time on a Sunday service talking about this? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you really why. Because if Daniel in this book, and if this book is really a forgery, if it has been written down post This written communication that we're reading about the future is a fake. Then let me tell you what this means. And this means that Jesus Christ was a liar. That's what it means. That's why this is so important. Because if we don't get this right, it means that everything else we read isn't right either. Because in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 16, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, what was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, those who are in Judah must flee to the mountains. Jesus did not say, and he would have said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the deceiver or Daniel the forger, Jesus would have called him out. But he called Daniel a what? A prophet. If Daniel wasn't a prophet, if this wasn't written when it was written, but later, then the credibility of Jesus is on the line. Not only that, but the entire New Testament, the documents of Peter, Paul, and John, who wrote in times apocalyptic literature, though though they had a fresh revelation, a lot of what they based is squarely based on the book of Daniel. So when Peter talks about the end times, or John talks about the end times, or Paul talks about the end times, they're usually referencing the book of Daniel. So if Daniel is wrong, so are Peter and James and Paul, and even John. So I want to sum it up by telling you what somebody else actually said. Sir Isaac Newton, you may know him. Sir Isaac Newton wrote more about Christian apologetics than he actually wrote about science. That might be new to some of you. Sir Isaac Newton said this, he said, whoever rejects the prophecy of the book of Daniel does as much as if he undermined the Christian religion. In other words, if this is fake, if this isn't true, if we can poke at it and it doesn't bleed truth, then what are we doing here this morning? Why are we getting dressed up and coming to church and singing to a God that doesn't exist and believing and reading a book that can't be trusted? Here's the point. The king has communicated about his kingdom and what you and I have in our hands is in fact truth, friends. And we can read about it in our own hands. That tells me, secondly, that then we can rely on the truth of the facts of the telling of the future. Then we can rely on the truth of the facts of the telling of the future. Look back over there in verse 1. He said, in the year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So again, these, these folks out there say this thing is a fairy tale. It isn't true. But, but it always amazes me how God has sort of a way of nailing things down to historical reality. And that's exactly what he does in verse 1. He says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. 
You see, historical reality is thrust upon us at the initial moment as we enter the seventh chapter. We're dealing with something that has really happened, and even historians have to say, these are real facts, these are true people, these are true times. Nebuchadnezzar had been dead for several years. The succession of monarchs who followed him were, to say at least, ineffective. The Jewish captivity was becoming more and more fearful, wondering whether they would be restored to their land. And it was in this moment that God speaks to Daniel in a vision. We're indebted to Daniel for for persevering what God showed him that night in his mind. We're, We're the beneficiaries. God revealed and Daniel wrote. And that's a good description of how our Lord delivers his divine, infallible, and inerrant revelation. You and I can rely on the facts that are found in this telling of the future because this is divine revelation. This is not just a prophecy. This is the word of God. And we can rely on it. The result is Daniel wrote down what we know is part of the Bible, the Holy Bible. Daniel just didn't come up with this vision by himself. God gave him the vision. God revealed it to him. And though he didn't understand it, he didn't understand everything, Daniel knew that this was inspired of God and therefore it was infallible and it was inerrant. And we can rely on the facts of the telling of the future for several reasons. First of all, we have the documents from history. We have the documents from history. The Bible can be proven true in Daniel chapter 7 because of the documents from history. I'm doing this for a reason. You'll see it the third week. You'll you'll be like, oh, now I know why he did that. I know why he bored us to tears. I I get it. But I'm just telling you, we have some some documents from archaeology. We have documents from archaeology. So in Daniel's vision, he's transported back to his home where he grew up, Judea, off the coast of Israel, that great Mediterranean sea that he mentions in his visions. He says in verse 2, he says, I was looking in my visions by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And he's talking about the Mediterranean sea where he grew up back at the center of of the world that he knew it. And what Daniel saw, he just simply wrote, and he saw and he wrote that, that he wrote the 6th century B.C., not later. And I believe Daniel is defended by the facts of archaeology because some critics say this isn't true because he mentions a guy by the name of Belshazzar who never existed in any of the records of history. So we've never found him in any of the archaeological digs is what they will say. So this guy that's written here, Belshazzar, we don't have any archaeological documents ever that mentions this guy. Therefore, Daniel must be a fake. So book after book, year after year was written that you can't trust the Bible because Belshazzar is never found anywhere in history. He never existed, so therefore Daniel is a liar and the book you hold in your hands is a liar. That is, until 1854 when an archaeologist in southern Iraq dug up a clay cylinder with a cuneiform writing around it and among other things was written a prayer for the good health and the long life of Nabonidus of Babylon and his son, Belshazzar. Shazar. And the critics were immediately silenced. And we discovered later on as they kept digging that not only was he the son of Nabonidus, but I told you he was his co-regent and he became the co-king of Babylon. And we've covered that material earlier. So in other words, when they began digging around in archaeology, they actually found what the Bible had been there all along. And therefore, when you read the name of Belshazzar, no matter what you find out there in critical world, you can know that it's true because not only we say it's true, but history says it's true. But we also have paleography. You're saying, what'd you say? Bless you? Coming down with a cold? <laughs> Paleography. Paleography is simply the study of old documents. It's manuscript evidence. And as you study the manuscript evidence, it points to an early writing, not a later writing. In other words, Porphyry came along and said, Daniel wrote afterwards. That's how come he knew everything had happened. Somebody pretending to be this wrote it down much later. That's how they could pinpoint it with such accuracy. But the manuscripts themselves are predated to the 6th century. In a language nobody knew in this time over here. Let me give you one of those pieces of evidence. You've heard of the Septuagint version of the Bible. If you haven't, the Septuagint of the Bible is the most famous translation of the Old Testament. It's translated from Hebrew. The Old Testament was in Hebrew, and it's put into Greek. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew. That's what the Septuagint is. 
It happened in 275 BC by scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. 270 BC is 110 years earlier than the supposed forger who came along in 165 BC and wrote the book of Daniel. So as we look to the Septuagint version of the Bible written before that, you know what's in it? The book of Daniel. So if the book of Daniel is written from the Hebrew in 275 BC, then how could somebody write it in 165 AD? That's the problem. That's paleography. That is the, the documentary evidence that we have. Probably the greatest modern time archaeological and paleographical discovery is the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the caves of Qumran. In cave number one and cave number four in Wadi Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, fragments were found of the book of Daniel in Hebrew and in Aramaic. But it's written, get this, Aramaic it was written in was not the, the stuff that came after the Maccabean times. It was before the Maccabean times in the Testament where Aramaic was written in the 6th century. And remember I told you this, this is interesting, that this was still in the Aramaic part of Daniel that's written in Aramaic. And it matches exactly the 6th century writing that was happening there. So archaeology and paleography, we have the, the documents from history that prove to us that this is true. But then we have the doings in history. Of the doings in history. Here Daniel sees the vision and he writes it down and he writes several visions down in the rest of the book. And he says, this is what's going to happen. And that was thousands of years ago. And it's given us enough time to see if they actually did happen. So when Daniel wrote it, some of it hadn't happened. So now that we're on the backside of it, we can look back and say, man, this happened exactly like Daniel said it was going to happen. If you say something is going to happen and it never happens, you're a false prophet. If you say something is going to happen and you let history take its course and it actually happens, I hope you go, hmm? I mean, history proves this. Daniel predicts that four mighty nations will come, and three of those mighty nations are mentioned by name in the book of Daniel, the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and the kingdom of Greece. And guess what, friends? They came just exactly like Daniel said. So somebody might say, well, you know, the supernatural never happens, and the book of Daniel is written after the fact. This is a real forgery. This is a fake. So then what you're basically doing is, is you're basically taking your own scientific arguments that would say we have to have archaeological evidence and we have to have manuscript evidence to make sure that things are true. Now I'm showing you that we have historical evidence, archaeological evidence, and manuscript evidence, and you're saying that's lying too. You cannot have it both ways. So the evidence is against the critic and against the, the skeptic. In other words, let me tell you this, friends. Here's something I learned a long time ago. Every time you poke at the Bible, it always bleeds truth. This book always will be proven true. I've always loved this statement by NASA scientist Robert Jastrow. He said, for the scientist who's lived by faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He scaled the mountains of ignorance, and he's about to conquer the highest peak, and he pulls himself over the final rock, and he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. We've discovered something archaeological. This must mean this. The Bible is correct. Well, okay, we may say that. And they crawl way up there as a bunch of theologians saying, listen, we told you this was going to happen a long time ago. See, we have the documents in history. We have the doings in history. But then we also have the declarations about history. The declarations about history, what I mean by this is that we have the prophecies of Daniel, the actual writings that contain the actual facts. Prophecy was given so that we can know that we can rely on God's word. Prophecy was given primarily to authenticate things. Let me put a disclaimer here. If you want me through the book of Daniel to tell you exactly when Christ is going to come, you need to find another church. Because Jesus himself didn't know, I promise you, I don't have a clue. If you're looking for me to give you specific, specific times and dates for a lot of things, that is not the purpose of prophecy. The primary purpose of, purpose of pro prophecy is to authenticate some things. So what does it do? It authenticates the sovereignty of God, prophecy does. It authenticates the sovereignty of God. In prophecy, we see the tremendous power of God and what he says he'll bring to pass. God is an omnipotent God. He's all-powerful. God is an omnipresent God. He's present everywhere. But God is also an omniscient God, meaning that he knows everything. 
So Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says this, remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Do you see what it says? It says that God is able to declare the end from the beginning. And it also says that God is able to declare things that are not yet done. Only God has the power to do that. So when you see prophecy given in the scripture, your heart should say that proves to me that authenticates the sovereignty of my God. But prophecy also authenticates the scriptures of God. Every time a prediction, a prophecy is fulfilled, it sets God and his word apart from every other being and every other book. There's always been those throughout the centuries who claim to have the gift of prophecy, and they have predicted many things. But listen, anytime anybody, I'm just, I'm not here to hurt people's feelings. I'm just here to tell you the truth. But yesterday, there were people all across the country that met in Seventh-day Adventist churches. You know why that was formed? Because somebody made a prophecy that Jesus Christ was going to come back, and they missed it by years. There's still people gathering in that prophet's name, worshiping as Seventh-day Adventists. Well, if we were to put scripture to the test, then that prophet should have been stoned. But that's not what we, how we do prophets nowadays. Anybody can just make a prophecy. Anybody can say, well, this is, this is what the book says. Anybody can say, well, I've got another book. We add this book to it. We take this book to it. We, we need this book and this book. When one looks at biblical prophecies, however, if one finds a record of unparalleled accuracy. In fact, God's requirement for a prophet is that he be right 100%, 100% of the time. Or he should be put to death. Now, that's a high standard. Peter, in writing his second epistle, was speaking about this experience with Jesus, and he said, We do not follow cunningly devised fables we made known to you into the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter goes on to explain how he saw Jesus transfigured before him on the mountain of transfiguration, and he heard a voice come out of heaven. Now listen, G, this is going to blow your mind, and I'm just, I'm just here to tell you the truth. Watch this. Peter sees the Lord Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. You'd think that would be awesome, but, but watch what Peter says in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says in verse 19, so he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But first of all, know this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made as an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That could literally be translated this way. We have something more certain than what we heard take place miraculously. In other words, what Peter is doing is saying this, you can believe in the miracle that I saw Jesus transfigured, that's cool, but I have something even more certain than that. It's the word of God. Some people want to trust their experiences. Peter said, you know what, I'm going to put this book, this is where I'm always going to go. This is even over my experience, Peter says. We have a more certain word of prophecy. When you hold this book in your hand, prophecy, you see it, it authenticates that this is the word of God. God spoke about certain events in advance and detail, something no other nation could do, no other prophet in any other nation or religion could pull off. So when they come to pass, anybody in his right mind will look at that and go, wow, there's something to that. Maybe I ought to commit my life to a God who can speak such things in graphic detail. That's the prophetic word made more certain. It's more certain than what you hear or even what you see, which is often subjective. But God gave objective proof that he was God and that his word is, in fact, true. And God challenges anyone to test him at his word. But God has a tremendous advantage over any created being because God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. That's quite an advantage, and because he knows everything, past, present, future, he controls everything, past, present, future. Ultimately, God can predict anything he wants to anytime he feels like it. He can do it in rough generalities, or he can do it in specific detail, and God puts those two usually together, generic stuff with specific stuff, and it should blow your mind, and I really hope as we study, Daniel, that your mind will be absolutely blown by what we read. In any other religion or anything else, one can come close but one will never match the predictions given by the prophets in the Old Testament. 
But as you know, a Hebrew prophet had to be right 100% of the time. So if he spoke something in the name of God that didn't come into pass, they took him out and they stoned him to death. Now listen, people in the Old Testament work quick to call themselves prophets. But today we got a bunch of them running around. Let me tell you something. Prophecy authenticates the scriptures of God, but then it authenticates the Son of God. See, the written word is proven true, but so is the living word. Of all the prophetic themes in the Bible, Israel, the nations, the church, the great tribulation, the millennial kingdom, clearly the greatest and most common theme is the coming of Jesus Christ, both his first and his second comings. The Old Testament offered hundreds of prophecies about his first coming, every one of them which was fulfilled in explicit detail. And the Lord's return is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. And while these prophecies yet have not been fulfilled, it seems the wise approach would be to say, well, the one that got it right 300% of 300 prophecies 100% of the time is going to be the one to get it right. In other words, let me tell you this, it proves that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came like it said the first time, he's going to come like it is the last time. Prophecy also authenticates the speaker of God. This is again in summary fashion, we're going to repeat some things because I'm trying to give you too much at one time and I know that but I don't have a choice. It authenticates the speaker of God. There were many voices. There were many religious lighters. There were many religious speakers. There are many people, even as there are today, running around trying to draw people to them and convince them that they speak for God. That was very common in those times. There There was these things, but God had to have some method of confirming who was a genuine prophet. God had to have some means by which he could single out a true prophet. And one way he did that was predictive prophecy. You could tell a true prophet because everything a true prophet prophesied came to pass. So prophecy was not only given by God to reveal truth to us, but in addition, it was to confirm the word of the prophet as being from God. It's not only to give us the message, but to give it to us in advance so that when it came to pass, we would know that the one who told it was true. We can rely on the facts of the telling of the future of the king and his kingdom because the one who gave it, Daniel, has been proven true by God. Prophecy is a confirmation of the voice of God predicting that which has not yet occurred in order that people might hear and be convinced that God is the source. Man cannot predict the future, you see, because he's not omniscient. So he doesn't know what's coming, and he's not omnipotent, so he can't control what's coming. The ability to predict the future involves omniscience, knowing everything, and omnipotence means controlling everything, and only God can do that. And the fact that in the Bible you have time and time again predictions of the future is indicative of the authorship of God himself. That which was at stake with the prophets who claim to speak for God is really what the Bible is. We have to be able to trust that we have the facts of the telling of the future. Now, as foreign as impossible it is to man, he nonetheless attempts to predict the future. You're probably going to see in 2024, somebody's going to predict the return of Christ. It's just going to happen. And throughout all human history, you have wizards and magicians and soothsayers and necromancers and clairvoyants and witches and swamis and mediums and oracles and fortune tellers and seers and astrologers and on and on. You've got all these people today who are trying to push themselves off on society as those who can predict the future. And frankly, many people fall prey to their influence. In other words, in the Old Testament, God says that there's only one person who can tell the future. And don't ever believe that anybody else can because they can't. And now, they might be right occasionally, like I said. A broke clock is right twice a day. But you see, the Hebrew prophet could never gamble on getting anything wrong. See, Hebrew execution was an ugly thing. Hebrews, when they executed somebody, they stoned them. But first of all, they would strip them relatively naked. They would bind their hands behind them. And then they would parade the victim out of town. And if they didn't have a precipice of at least 10 feet or so, over which they could push that person to a flat space below, they'd build a scaffold nine feet high, and they would climb the person up the stairs to the scaffold. And then they would serve the person off the scaffold. And then the first official witness against the crime committed by the individual would do the pushing. And then the person whose hands would bound would hit the ground with a great thud. And then the second witness would take a large boulder and drop that boulder on the head and chest of the person claiming to be a false prophet. And then all the rest of the witnesses would join in and the whole community would throw stones and pummel this person to their death. 
The corpse of that person who had been stoned was then taken to an infamous place to be buried. It was buried with the stone that was dropped on the body as a marker, and no ceremony to grieve their death was permitted. You say, why did they do that? Because God was serious about who would speak for him and who wouldn't. And anybody who said they predicted the future but missed it, that's what happened to them. In Deuteronomy 13, 15, it says this, But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to seduce you from the way in which the Lord commanded. So you shall purge the evil among you. A false prophet was not just somebody who got it wrong. They were somebody who was evil. Deuteronomy 13.10, so you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Anybody, anytime somebody comes along and claims to tell the future and claims to speak predictively and misses it, the Bible says they should be stoned. 100% is the standard. Now you show me a modern prophet who would likely to stake his ability to predict the future against his life with those kind of odds. I promise you, people would shut up. So prophecy authenticates the prophet. But then prophecy also, lastly, authenticates the sensitivity of God. When we look to the past and see what God has done and how he fulfilled his promises, then we can look with future, uh, with confidence in the future. Every promise which God has made to us, we can believe that one of these days is going to come to pass. See, prophecy gives you an I hope when the future looks bleak. I mean, I don't know. When I, when I look around, I don't see a lot of reasons right now to be optimistic about my government, about politics, about international relations, about my culture, about the economy, about education, you name it. You go on. But I am an optimistic person. I'm very concerned about the legacy when the process of leaving our children. There's been such deterioration in, in real quality of life in the past 40 years that, that if the present rate of decline continues, I don't know what my grandchildren are going to face. But when I speak about life, I'm talking about possessions, conveniences, transportation, communications. Obviously, there's been great improvements in those, but I'm really talking about the things that matter. Our values have, have went down the toilet. Our family commitments are, are gone. The idea of doing life in community, the pride of actually working hard, loyalty, integrity, security, safety. Frankly, I think I would reach the point of despair were it not my conviction that God has revealed to us in the last chapter of human history what it's going to look like. The question always arises when we study a book like Daniel, and I want to touch on this, why, why is it just now that we're all the way through the Old Testament and we're almost to the end of it, why is it now that God tells us about how it's all going to end? Why does God wait so long to put this in the Bible? Well, I believe the answer is that Daniel was, you remember, God's prophet in the time of Israel's captivity. And all up until Israel was, was taken into the Babylonian captivity, they had believed that God had a special purpose for them. They were convinced that God had set them apart and God would enrich them and bless them and bestow his loving kindness on them forever, that they would inherit the earth and they would reign in a kingdom and it would all be theirs. And in the midst of all that anticipation and hope, they had been taken captive because of their sin. And now they were languishing under the ruler, ruling of a pagan monarch and they were mingling in a pagan society. Their land was in shambles. Their temple was destroyed. The walls of their city had been broken down. They were almost a non-existent nation. And the question naturally comes to mind, has God forsaken us? Has God violated his promises and his intentions? Are we now being set aside? And from the human perspective, I know it looked to them as if God had set them aside and was through with them. But you see, that's where prophecy comes in. God was not through with his people. It had been a 70-year purging. There would have to be some time of restoring and rebuilding, but God wanted to know in the midst of your deepest hour of trial, God has never set you permanently aside. And so he gives them in the midst of this time the word through Daniel that there's yet a glorious and marvelous future set in store for them. And by the way, years before this, as many as 40 years before this, early in captivity, he'd already given the dream to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, which Daniel interpreted, which also gave them the hope that they were still in God's future. So now in Daniel chapter 7, there's a reiteration of that promise, but it's more explicit and comprehensive. 
And what God's trying to say to them in chapter 7, and then he repeats it in 8 through 12, is this. I'm not only not through with you, but I have an incredibly glorious future for you. There's coming a time when the world will run its course, and your Messiah will come, and he will establish his kingdom on earth, and he will free you not only from physical but spiritual bondage. And when he establishes a powerful, glorious earthly empire in which you will reign as my people. So it's a great and wonderful message to them. Daniel's just the deliverer. But even this, the timing, I believe, is so specific. The vision at the end of the prophecy of Daniel were given to Daniel after Nebuchadnezzar had ruled. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar was a brilliant and a brilliant genius of a monarch. And under Nebuchadnezzar, things went well for the Babylonian Empire. And I'm sure when they got the vision, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar filtered down to them. The Jewish people thought, boy, that's great. Things are going to go well for us. The promise came through that dream that God has a future for his people. There's coming a stone cut without hands who will destroy the world empires and the kingdom will fill the whole earth. And they must have had hope. But now Nebuchadnezzar is dead. And when Nebuchadnezzar died, the whole kingdom began to fall apart and it wasn't nearly as secure as they thought they might be. And by the time these visions come, Belshazzar is reigning. And Belshazzar, if you remember, was an evil man. And so now they're beginning to question whether or not God is going to be able to pull off the salvation of his people. And how will it happen? How will they be rescued from this land? Because it is falling apart rapidly. The first two visions then of the four were given during the time of Belshazzar. And the second two visions were given during the reign of the Medo-Persian Empire that follows it. So it was the right moment that God speaks his word. And God comes at that very critical time at the close of their captivity to give them a vision of the future. And I'm trying to tell you today... And just rational, just trying to teach through this. And this is more teaching than preaching, but that's why you've got to stick around. (laughs) Trying to tell you today that no matter what you're going through, it may look like, man, has God forsaken? I mean, has has, has God promised something and he ain't going to pull it off? I promise you, God is not done yet. There's a great story I've always loved about Carl Henry. Carl Henry is now in heaven. He was an eminent theologian and an author. When he was a student, he was on a university campus with a group outside. He was giving his testimony up to them about why he believed in Jesus. The edge of the crowd was a skeptic who interrupted Carl Henry, and he said, let me just ask you a question. He said, Mr. Henry, do you believe in the book that you're holding, that Bible? Do you believe all those stories? I mean, you mean to tell me that you believe there was really a universal flood? You believe the story about Jonah and the whale? You believe that that, that creation story? You, You believe all that stuff? Carl Henry said, yes, sir, I believe all that. So the man went on to disrupt him and and sort of put him in a corner. He said, well, let me ask you a question. How could a guy like Jonah survive in the belly of a great fish or a whale, as your Bible says, with all those gastric juices emanating, with oxygen deprivation as a part of the problem, and with all the gases of the elementary canal? How on earth could a man survive in the belly of a whale? Well, Henry answered, sir, I don't know the answer to all your questions, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. The skeptic said, well, yeah, well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? Henry said, well, I guess then you can ask it. <laughs> Beloved, I'm here today to tell you that you can rely. You can rely on the facts that are here. And the only reason I would take a morning of your life and teach you all this is because I'm going to tell you, the rest of Daniel chapter 7 is going to blow your mind. Just like this unbelieving world cannot believe that a man could survive in the belly of a fish, what the rest of Daniel chapter 7 is going to tell you is going to blow your mind to the degree that it blows an unbeliever's mind. And if we don't trust what's coming we are going to be so insecure in what the Bible really says. So before I preach it to you, I've got to know that you actually believe what we're fixing to go through because it is one crazy story. This is all going to shake down, and it's going to happen exactly like God says it is. And I want you to be able to believe it when you hear it because it is almost too good to be true. Kim and those who are singing and playing this morning, if you would come. We can rely on the facts about the telling of the future. The king and his kingdom have been communicated.
and it's been written down to us telling about the future, and we can rely on the facts about the telling of the future. So this morning, here's the truth of the matter. The king has already come one time. When Jesus Christ came into this earth, he came the first time, and you know what he came to do? He came as Savior. He came to die for our sins because the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that because of that, the wages of sin, and what we get because of our sin is, is death. That means physical death and spiritual death. The Bible says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ, and the Bible says that God so demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinning, Christ died to pay for our sins and that if we confess with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord. In other words, we want him to direct our lives. We want to turn from our sin and turn to him. If we believe that he's Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wages of our sin, which is death. And that's why Jesus came the first time. But I'm here today to tell you, Jesus is coming again. And if he comes again and you don't know him as Lord, you're going to be forced to know him as Lord. And he will punish you and send you into an eternity that's forever going to be a place that you would dwell. And so you say, well, I don't know if I can believe all that. Well, see, that's why I spent the time to tell you, if I can believe what's written here, then I can't really debate whether it's true or not. I can just debate whether you're actually going to put it in place in your life. See, I could tell you that over there in that socket right there is electricity, and you say, well, I don't really know about electricity, but, but see, I can tell you this. I don't have to go there and stick my finger in that socket to know that it's going to shock me. There's some things you can just take people's word for. You're saying, well, what if they're wrong? See, that's the point. I'm trying to tell you the word is never wrong. The word says that if you put your Put your finger over there in that socket, you're going to get burned. In other words, if you don't trust in Christ, you're going to be forever separated from him. So this morning, maybe you want to come to Christ this morning. There'll be some people here to receive you. We can pray with you. We can talk with you. We can begin a conversation with you. Maybe there's some other people here this morning. You just need to pray about anything that's going on in your world. I don't know what it would be. But would you stand with me while I pray? And then you come as the Lord may lead. Father, I just thank you that, Lord, I know your word is true. Lord, I pray today that you've just reminded us all that what you say really does make a difference. I pray that you would speak now in Jesus' precious name.